Welcome again to those online, to those in the room. We're glad that you're here. In just a moment, we're going to take a look at Joshua chapter 3. We're going to be talking about leveraging your past to achieve your God-ordained future. I struggle with people who think they don't have a God-ordained future. Your life is unique. Your relationship's different than mine. And yet you know the Lord. And in that relationship, uh, in that sphere of influence, whatever that is for you or whatever it might become, God has a purpose for you. You were born at this time and in this place to do something that nobody else is quite positioned or quite enabled to do. And so it's good that you wrestle with that, that you think about that, and that you pray about that, and you discover that and begin to work towards that. I guarantee you it will change your life. It will bring much happiness to you. And at the end of your life, when you enter into heaven's glory by the grace of Jesus, and you hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant, you've been faithful in a few things. You enter into my peace, enter into my joy. You'll know exactly what he meant. And I don't think you'll ask him, you know, why did I have it so hard? You'll say, thank you, Lord, for the challenges that you gave to me. Because the challenges were the essence of my life. Let me pray for you. Gracious Lord, I ask that you would bless us in this time. We're going to spend it in your word. And, and uh, as if we had a prophet here or as if you were a burning bush in our midst, your word is still alive. It still brings power. And, and it is able to speak to each of us in our own uh, circumstance appropriately so. And so we present open hearts, Lord, and we ask that on the basis of your truth, on the basis of this narrative, that you would guide us to accomplish your purpose in our life, to your glory, to the good of others, and to our own personal blessing through Christ Jesus. Amen. It's amazing since we've begun this series, Foothold, you know, taking that, that foothold to make the next step towards your God-intended future, I've been having conversations about this, and not just with members of the congregation, not just people who've been in our services or who've heard our themes, but it's amazing how it's popped up in conversations I have with people apart from this relationship that I have with you. In fact, I uh, had a conversation with a businessman a while back who said, you know, how do I know what it is that God wants me to do? You know, it's an important conversation. And I would say there's no one way. You know, I can't give a direct answer to you. But I believe that if you are attentive to it, if you are uh, praying for it, I believe that God will reveal that to you. It happens in all kinds of ways. Let me take you back to 1896, 30 years after the Civil War had ended, uh, the beginning of the Industrial Age. Let me take you to a place in Dayton, Ohio, where a man lay near death suffering from typhoid fever. In fact, medicine being what it was in 1896, there was very little medically that could be done for him except keep him comfortable and pray that his body would be strong enough. He was 36 years old. Pray that his body would be strong enough to overcome uh, the fever and that he would survive. Many did not. Well, he did turn the corner and he began to recover, but nevertheless, he would convalesce for quite a while before he was able to get up and move on with his life. And at age 36, you got to believe, especially when you are touched by death, you begin to say, so what is the purpose of my life? 
Why has God spared me? What is there left to do? His older brothers were engaged in business. He didn't think that that was beckoning to him. And so he began to read as he was unable to go out and unable to resume his activities in his shop. He began to read. And one story about Otto uh, Leonthal from Germany captured his attendance. We have a guest from Germany today. For 30 years, Otto had been experimenting with gliders. You know, more the hang glider thing where a guy just dangles underneath a wing. And for 30 years, he had been fascinated by that prospect. Unfortunately, he had fallen from some 50 feet. His glider had crumbled and he had uh, fallen to his death. And it was being widely reported across the United States just when Wilbur Wright was convalescing and began to be captivated by that man's story. And especially by a quote by Otto Leonthal. He said, it must not remain our desire only to acquire the art of the bird. It is our duty not to rest until we had attained the perfect scientific conception of the problem of flight. There's a picture there on the Outer Banks. They're not worried about sharks out there, you know. But there were very, very few people who lived on the Outer Banks, only life-saving stations. Today, some 60,000 people live on that 200 strip of land, 200 mile strip of land off the coast of North Carolina. They went there because uh, Wilbur began to study the issue of flight and uh, gliders. He'd already accomplished something in his life and so he's going to leverage what he had learned. He had learned how to take the uh, antique bicycle that maybe you've seen in a parade or maybe an antique store that had that huge front wheel, it was 10 feet tall, and the small little wheel. And he had balanced those two wheels, and he and his brother had begun to create the modern bicycle and sold it across the country uh, to some degree of success. So he had taken an idea, and he had improved it already. He said, maybe I can do that with the work that's been done on aviation. And so in his bicycle shop, they began to think about gliders. They investigated also where the best winds were in the United States for gliding, and so they heard uh, that probably the outer banks of North Carolina would be the place to go because there was a sustained 15 to 20 mile an hour wind not fluctuating much below that or much above that. And so they made years of trips out there until finally they had achieved flight with a glider. Here's what they wrote about it. They had acquired the knowledge and the skill to fly. They could soar, they could float, they could dive, they could rise, they built rudders, they had an understanding of how you could warp the wing, the wing to make it turn. They could circle, they could glide, they could land, all with assurance. But now they still had a problem. How do you build a motor for this? So they went back to Dayton and like they had done before, uh, not always original research. They had written to Uh, 15 different automobile manufacturers across the country. That was also kind of a cottage industry. It wasn't the big three that we know today. And they had asked them to supply an engine. Here's how it turned out. There was only one who even bothered to respond. And in that case, the motor was much too heavy. So again, they had some original work to do. And they had no experience building engines, but they knew they had to build their own. Can you imagine? I would have just said, that's a deal killer. I guess we'll just glide for the rest of our life. They said, no, we're going to figure this out. We're going to build an engine. They'd never built an engine before. They'd had no experience with that. But in January, working in the back shop with the same metal lathe, the same, you know, tube benders, and the same drill press used for their bicycle, in six weeks they had developed an engine. You know, there was something about these guys 
something about the challenge of the next big step, something about ability to leverage what they learned from their study and what they had learned from their experience to accomplish the next big step in aviation that changed the world. By the way, their daddy was a preacher, and uh, they loved the word, and they loved the idea that God had created flight for the birds. And like men had tamed the ocean, so they believed it was possible to tame the skies. Let me ask three questions through the study of this text. First of all, what is it that stands between you and your NBT, your next big thing? You know, there are obstacles. They face some obstacles. You have to identify the obstacles. What will it take you to accomplish your next big thing? You know, what will it take you uh, to overcome those obstacles? And what gives you the confidence to believe that it could be accomplished? Well, enough talk. Let's get to the scripture and let's read from Joshua chapter 3, beginning at verse 9. Bring you up to speed. They'd come out of Egypt. They'd come to uh, Kadesh Barnea. They had camped on the, the border of the promised land. They had sent spies into the promised land. And the spies came back saying, no way could we possibly do this. The land is filled with giants and fortified cities and armies. We are just a slave people. And so God was disappointed in their lack of faith. And he caused them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. 40 years of funerals. No one over the age of 20 would live to walk across the Jordan into the promised land, you know, until that generation had died. Well, that generation had died, including Moses, the leader of the people. Uh, He had been given the opportunity to go up on a high mountain and given divine vision to see from the north to the south and all the way to the Mediterranean Sea all that God had promised that they were about to inherit. But it was going to be left to Joshua to do it. Joshua appealed to God. God gave him instruction. And Joshua comes before the people and he says, this is what we're going to do to accomplish our next big thing. Joshua said to the Israelites, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God, not the God of the past, not the God of Moses, not the God of Abraham and Jacob in the past, but the same God who is living today for us is among you. And that he will certainly drive out before you the people that your parents feared. The Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. See the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The Ark contained a a bowl of manna to remind them of God's provision. It included Aaron's staff. Uh, You know, that God had uh, given assurance that uh, he would be with them always. It included the Ten Commandments. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth. Not just your Lord, but the Lord of even the land we're going to conquer. Will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose 12 men from each of the tribes of Israel. And they did. We're going to come back to that in a minute. And as soon as the priest who carried the Ark of the Lord... Again, not just your Lord, but the Lord of all the earth. As soon as these men set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan was at flood stage during this time, all during the harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who were carrying the ark, how would you like to be that guy, first guy? I'm going to step into a flooded river. As soon as they reached the ark and stepped into the Jordan, their feet touched the water's edge. 
boom. The water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a huge heap a great distance away, all the way to a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathan. While the waters flowing down to the Sea of Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, were completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite the city of Jericho. The priests who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and they stood there on dry ground. Confidence to the people. They all walked by the Ark of the Covenant. God was doing this for them. While Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. So let's take a look at that first question. What was it that stood between Joshua and his mission? It's not a theological question. It's not just a theory. It's not a hypothetical. There were real challenges, serious difficulties to achieve the purpose of conquering this promised land. First of all, they had to cross a river. It wasn't bad enough that they had to cross a river. They had to cross a river that was at flood stage. Now, I've seen the Jordan a few times. I've been to the Holy Land, and and today it's a mere uh, shadow of what it used to be. Uh, The Jordan River flowing out of the Sea of Galilee all the way down to the Dead Sea is now used to irrigate most of the Holy Land, what we call Palestine today. And so the water levels in the Jordan are not near what they used to be. You know, back in the day before irrigation, that was a pretty massive river. And at flood stage, it overwhelmed its banks. I don't know if you've ever seen a a massive river at flood stage, but the roar of it alone is intimidating. They were going to cross a flooded river? God's going to show you that he's the living God, the God of all the earth. These were the children of the people who came out of the Exodus. Very few of these people actually had any memory of crossing the Red Sea. Very few of these people actually had any memory of the ten plagues. You know, those were their parents, the parents who had died in the wilderness. So God was bringing a younger people, a new generation of people, to do what their parents could not believe possible. And after they crossed the Jordan, they'd already sent spies to uh, see about this fortified city, this massive city that lay on the opposite side called Jericho. Jericho was known for its walls. They were impregnable. In fact, there was a series of three walls on a high mountain. The first wall was 15 feet tall. After they crossed that, they had to run uphill under the, uh, the, the firing of archers you know, to the next wall that was 25 feet tall, up another hill to a wall that was 40 feet tall. Nobody messed with Jericho. It was impossible to take Jericho, and yet the Lord said it would be done. It's interesting that if you remember their parents refusing to believe it could be accomplished, the Bible comments about that day that they decided it could not be done. Only Joshua, their new leader, and Caleb, another older man, uh, believed that it could be done and brought back a different message. The other ten spies that went into the land said it can't be done, and here's what they said about the land. They said, we noticed that in the land... There were Nephilim there, descendants of giant people. And it says, we looked like grasshoppers in our own eyes compared to the challenge that was ahead of us. And so we looked like grasshoppers also to them. That's what the scripture says. You know, their mindset was, this job is too big. That's what stood between Joshua and the promise. 
What makes you feel like a grasshopper? What intimidates you? What makes you feel small and incapable of achieving your next big step? What stands in your way? These are not hypotheticals. You can say, no, this really stands in my way. Lack of education. By the way, Orville and Wilbur Wright had not a college education, neither one had a high school education. Was it money? Is that what stands between you and your goal that you would achieve? And I'm not talking about, you know, adding to your bottom line. I'm not talking about having bigger and better. I'm talking about a life of significance. Is it the right connections? Is it being too busy, too sinful? God can't use me. I've got a history. I've got a past. It could be that your history and your past is the very thing that God wants to use. It gives you a voice of authenticity that I don't have, maybe. Your struggle is different than mine. You can speak to a whole group of people that would never listen to a preacher. God has perfectly positioned you to do something great. Too sinful, too timid, too inexperienced, too young. Are you too old? What is it that you're using as an excuse? It's a very real thing that keeps you from doing what you feel God may be asking you to accomplish. And so we ask the next question. What would it take for Joshua to achieve the next big thing? Well, he's going to have to leverage some history. He's going to have to remember all of those years that he walked with Moses and all the ways that Moses was enabled to do what no man could do because God was with him. He was going to learn to leverage his past. He was going to have to learn to trust in the promise of God because God had given him a promise that he would not be with, he would not leave him, he would not forsake him. He's going to have to trust in miracles. And the whole nation was going to have to trust in the godly leadership of a man that obviously stood under the blessing of God. I think that's what excites me most about the future of this church. It's not the size of our facility. It's not the strength of um, our giving. It's not the technology that we have here. It's the godly leadership of the man that we've chosen to be our next pastor. You know, it's just an incredible thing. You can't listen to him teach. And you can't spend any time with him and not know that there's a deep, godly man there. Not a perfect man, but a man who knows he's not perfect. And so that gives me hope. That gives me confidence to believe in our future. What will it take for you to accomplish your next big thing? What is it? I, I believe that you have some things that are to your advantage. Uh, first of all, I think it's going to require a right spirit in you. And, and that means that you would be discerning of God's will for your life. I love this passage from James chapter 4 that says, You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. You want the wrong things that you may achieve your own pleasures. No, what is it that God is asking you to do? Uh, to be attuned to his spirit for your life because he is your creator. He is your redeemer. He is the one who gives you significance. Uh, I love this from David in Psalm 51. We sang it as a child, you know, in, in the traditional church that I attended. Every week we called it the offertory. We sang it at the end of uh, the pastor's sermon. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Lord, forgive my past. Forget the past. Help me to forget my past and renew a right spirit within me. Lord, help me to understand what it is that you want me to achieve. And I, I think that's a question that you should ask. Lord, don't let me be captive of my past. Let me forget my mistakes. Let me realize that they are only life lessons that I can leverage for my future. 
So now just give me a right spirit. Give me your spirit, O Lord. And then secondly, I, I think that we all need divine swagger. I talk to our staff about this a lot. Uh, I think there's a lot of um, self-limitation going on uh, in your life and in the life of this congregation, to be honest with you. Uh, I, I think we suppose who we are, and, and we place limits on, on that based on our perception of ourselves. You know, I, I think this congregation has been called by God to make a difference in this community not just among our families, but beyond our families, to be a force to be reckoned with. It amuses me that people are saying, well, what's going to become of the Christian church? You know, with the Supreme Court decisions and the animosity leveled against Christians? Who cares? You know, I've had, I had six pastors ask me last week, you know, what are you going to say to your congregation? I'm going to say the God of yesterday is the God of today, and he's going to be the God of tomorrow. It doesn't change a thing. You know, what the nation does doesn't change a thing. As to what we are to do individually, what we are to do as a congregation, does it? It doesn't. In fact, it gives us just greater opportunity to be a salt and light, to stand out by contrast to what we see going on in the world. It's empowering. It's, it's encouraging to know that there's going to be no confusion about those who stand with God. It's going to be completely obvious. To have this divine swagger. I, I love it, uh, this story about David slaying Goliath. You know, it's an interesting analogy uh, in our life. Because David was sent there by his father to find out how the battle was going. He had older brothers that were in the army. And so when he got there, he saw the Philistines on one side of a mountain. And he saw uh, on the opposite side of the valley, he saw the camp of Israel. And this giant of a man named Goliath, nine foot tall... Uh, came out every day and he said, why should we fight as a people? Send your champion down to fight against me. If your champion wins, then we will serve you. And if we win, then you will serve us. Let us settle it in a civilized way. And no one wanted to go down there because he was such a huge guy. And David said, why doesn't somebody deal with this guy? I mean, he's a heathen. He doesn't have God on his side. And his older brother said, would you be quiet, David? David, you're speaking out of turn. You, don't, you can't tell from up here how big that guy is. That guy is huge. So David uh, asked permission to go see Saul. And he said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion, leveraging his past. He saved me from the lion when they attack our sheep. He saved me from the bear when the bear attack our sheep. He will also rescue me from this, Philipp- from this Philistine. And it wasn't just David. I mean, this was just the way of God. When Moses' back was pinned against the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army was coming down upon them, he held the staff over the water and said, watch what God will do. Divine swagger. He believed that God had brought them out to save them, not to destroy them. In the time of Esther, uh, during the uh, time of Xerxes, king of Persia, uh, she was chosen as a beauty queen, really, uh, of the entire nation to be his queen. And Mordecai, her uncle, had heard of a plot to destroy the entire nation of Israel that lived under the rule of Persia. And he said to uh, Queen Esther, his kinswoman, he said, you must go and appeal to the king on behalf of all of us. And she said, don't you understand that unless the king asks me to come, there's but one rule. I could be put to death for even making such a request. I serve only at his bidding. And he said, Esther, Esther. Who knows that you've been put in this position for such a time as this? If you don't save the nation, God will save the nation some other way. 
just divine swagger. God's going to do this, Esther. You get the privilege of being a part of it or not. Divine swagger. And so it does throughout the Bible. Not just Moses, not just Joshua, not just Mordecai, but Daniel thrown into the lion's den saying, don't worry about me, king. God can provide for me. He could shut the mouth of the lions, and he did. His friends, uh, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were thrown into the fiery furnace, said to the king, you know, don't worry about it, king. God is able to save our lives, but even if he does not, doesn't mean a thing. He's still God. And, of course, he did, and he was, and he is. And Paul, when he was put in prison in Philippi, wrote to other Christians, he goes, you know, I'm under the verdict of death if I'm found guilty, but it's okay with me. If I die, I'm going to be with God. That's going to be far better. Or if I'm released, I have work to do. You know, you should envy me, not worry about me. Or Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was about to be arrested and Peter went to defend him and said, Peter, put your sword away. I serve that the purpose of my father. Don't you know he could send angels to defend me if I ask him? You know, I'm here to do his will, not to protect myself. Divine swagger. So a right spirit, divine swagger, and an open heart. You may not be clear on what God wants you to do. But as you begin to move in that direction, I believe that God will guide you. He draws straight with a crooked line. God will guide you to the purpose that he wants you to accomplish. Listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into this city, spend some time there, carry on our business, and make some money. Well, you don't know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're just a breath that appears for a while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this and do that. What makes you confident? What made Joshua confident of a positive outcome? He had seen God act in the past. And he wanted the people to remember this day and not forget how God had brought them miraculously across a flooded river. Remember those 12 men I said that he chose from each of the tribes? Well, they show up in the next chapter. He calls those 12 men after the whole nation has crossed over on dry ground and and the Ark of the Covenant is still in the midst of the river. And he says, send the 12 men out into the middle of the Jordan to pick up 12 rocks. And when you get to the other side, lay them down in a big heap so that you will always pass by that heap and remember the miracle that God has done then. Leverage your past to accomplish your future. What makes you confident of a positive outcome? Some very real things. You know the Bible. You know what God has done in the past. You can examine the divine history. Uh, God is the same today as he was then. He will be that way always. You have your own personal history. You have the promises of God. You have the cross of the Savior. God who did not spare his own son but gave him up for you. If he went that far... Will he not also, along with him, provide whatever it is you need to accomplish the purpose for which you are called? They put 12 stones from the the bed of the the, uh, river, the Jordan River, to remind the people of what God had done. What are your 12 stones? What history do you have? You know, I've actually collected some things. In fact, last week, you remember uh, when we installed Pastor Garrett for our 
our future. I had a baseball and I talked about the importance of focus and, and how it's important for us to have focus as a church. Remember what the mission is. But our focus on the mission, you can have the right mission, but if you don't have the right focus, it won't happen. And I talked to Pastor Dion about that in my message as well. And, and I gave that baseball to him and I wrote on a divine focus and I wrote the text on there that says, are you jealous for my sake? Wouldn't you wish that all God's people were prophets? And he has that in his office. I want him to remember divine focus. That's what's going to accomplish the next big thing. In my life, I have things like that. In fact, in my life, I have a, I have a hay hook. I don't know if you know what that is. It's just a block of wood with a, with a big uh, iron hook in it. And I used it on my grandparents' farms back in the day when we'd bail hay. You'd grab it with that hay hook and you'd throw it up to the next guy. And then he had a hay hook and he would stack it on the wagon. And you'd take it to the barn. And I want to remember my roots and where I came from. You know, I have things like that. I have a, I have a, a switch lock. When I used to work for the Erie Lackawanna Railroad, we called it the Erie Lackawanna Railroad, you know, that uh, came all the way from Pittsburgh all the way to Chicago. And, and uh, I worked on the, uh, on the section crews for a while, and then I became actually a, a brakeman on the line. And uh, uh, when that railroad went defunct, as a lot of railroads did, I saw in an antique store a key and a switch lock, those big locks that you turn, and, and I purchased it to remember how God provided for me in college. I was from a poor family. My dad had no money to help me with college. And God gave me that job. And I was able to pay my college bills. I want to remember what God did because the God who has my personal history of provision is also the God who has my future provision history in mind. And, and I have also in, in my house, my, Carol, uh, my wife Carol is, uh, is, is a person who tosses things. I'm a person who hoards things. And, and uh, I have downstairs some hunting gear. And in there I have a, a coat that doesn't fit me. Uh, it, it has my dad's name on it, and it has an emblem on it. He was a shop steward for the UAW. And she says, why do you keep that coat? You'll never wear it. It doesn't even fit you. Your dad was a regular year long. And, and I said, because it's my dad's. And I want to remember the man, you know, who, who was, you know, so formative in my life. I have his pocket knife as well. I have better pocket knives. I've always carried a pocket knife. Uh, his was cheap, and you can't even sharpen it. It's not that good. Uh, but I keep it to remember the man, you know, who, uh, who that was and how God used that person to help me. In my office, I have files. And, and in those files, I have a lot of informational files, but I also have personal files of letters that you've written to me. Some of them are positive. And... Uh, some of them are in asbestos, you know, to keep them from burning the rest of the files that are in the box. And, and, and I read them when I start to think too much of myself. And I think, not everybody, not everybody believes your stuff, Steve. You know, you've hurt some people. You've offended some people. And still look at what God has done. You've made some mistakes. And God is bigger than that. And so I, you know, say, you know, created me a clean heart, oh God. And renew a new spirit, a right spirit, your spirit within me. You know, leverage your past for the sake of the future. I began this uh, service by talking about a, a miracle of flight that took place on the Outer Banks. I want to finish with one as well. This is St. Louis oriented. That's Charles Lindbergh, of course. We have streets named after that guy. You know, he flew 25 years after the Wright brothers. He flew from New York to Paris. You all know that. He came back to the United States. You know where he went first after he came back to the United States? Dayton, Ohio. Wilbur Wright had long since died, but Orville Wright was still there. And he went to Orville Wright and he thanked him for the legacy, not of scientific breakthrough, but of a mind and a heart 
that led to the next big thing in aviation. On that day, he said, honoring the Wright brothers, it's customary to and proper to recognize their contribution to scientific progress. But I believe it's equally important to emphasize the quality in their pioneering life and the character in a man that such a life produced. (laughs) Far surpassed the Wright brothers flying gliders. You know, it's almost child's play today compared to what happens, you know, in the skies and in the rockets and in the space exploration today. It's nothing. But the Spirit is everything. God has placed that Spirit within you to do things significant to His glory, to the blessing of others, and to your personal sense of satisfaction. Leverage your history, your past, to accomplish your future. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for all the failures that I've encountered, all the incredible obstacles that stand between me and the next big thing, so that when these things are accomplished, I can say God did that. And I was privileged to be a partner with God in doing miraculous things. Help no one in this room to deny that they are your child, that they have the potential to make a difference in things that eternally matter. Give them such courage, we pray in Christ. Amen.